0: This is a 3CR podcast.
1: And this is published or not.
2: I've been working on my rewrite, that's right. I'm going to change
1: the. David.
0: Jan. Authors again. Authors, it's just marvellous to have people in the studio.
1: You've got Jan, I've got Perus. There we go. Okay. Whether it's on television, social media, or through newspapers, the stories of invasion, war, and conflict appear to be continual as they have through all our history. Peruz Jafari has taken the historical into the personal in 40 nights. Welcome Peruz.
2: Thank you, Jane.
1: One part of this story is set in Iran through the late 1970s and 1980s. What's happening there?
2: May I first start by acknowledging that I'm uh, meeting you on the lands of Orangiri people and uh, pay my respects to elders. Past and present. Thank you.
1: Because we're all migrants really, aren't we? We are coming indeed. Here. Well mm-hmm. we tend
2: to forget, Jan.
1: We sometimes do. Let's try from seventy-four, page seventy-four. Let's just hear where this particular person might be coming from.
2: Tehran, September nineteen seventy-nine. The political disturbance in the country had intensified in the late nineteen seventy eight. Students continued to hold demonstrations at major universities, socialist parties ramped up their activities, and Islamic ideology was gaining a mysterious strength. Maman used to say that people did not appreciate the modern, progressive, free country Iran had become in the late 1960s and 70s under the Shah's rule. He was the king of Iran, the second in the Pahlavi dynasty that had reigned for more than 50 years. When the Shah was forced to leave, it threw the country into chaos. The Americans had backed the Shah while the Russians were backing the Socialists and Communists, and the power of the religious clerics was on the rise. At night, people would turn off their lights and chant Allahu Akbar from windows and rooftops. It was quite eerie. The Shah left Iran in December 1978. And in February 1979, the exiled cleric Khomeini arrived in Tehran from Paris. He had the grand title of Ayatollah, the highest rank amongst the Shia Muslims, though how he attained the status was never explained. Most people had never heard of him until the demonstrations began. Then suddenly he was being referred to as the saviour of the country. Posters of him were distributed among the community, and soon every store had a framed portrait of him on their wall. When did he have the chance to sit for this portrait, Maman wanted to know. On the day Ayatollah Khomeini was driven into the city from Tehran's airport, a sea of people lined the streets to see his car pass. The same people who used to line up to wave at the Shah's processions, People change colours very easily and conveniently, it turns out.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, I thought that was a really good rundown of just what happened and also bringing in the personal, the maman in, and in, in how she uh, sort of just wondered about things because we all know that photo that just appeared everywhere. And so this is Tishtar. He's talking about his family and just about the politics. So fit us, tell us who Tishtar is and how he
2: fits in with the family. So Tishtar is, is the youngest child of I guess middle class educated family in Tehran in the nineteen born in, in, in the nineteen seventies. And he grows up, you know, right on the cusp of the, the Islamic Revolution and he witnesses you know the country going go to turmoil and how it impacts every aspect of his family life. And, and community life. And he grows up through, you know, his his childhood and adolescence are, are spent during the first couple of decades of post-revolution.
1: Well, his both his parents are, are teachers. His father taught physics and his mother taught literature at a girls' school. But with all of this, she refused to go back to
2: work. Yes, and and she was um, she was quite strong-willed woman, and and she, when um, wearing a scarf and and you know hijab, hijab and Islamic dressing became compulsory, she she refused to mm. to return to work and, and retired very early. And there's Auntie
1: Tangerine with her Italian red dresses and her Revlon lipstick. She didn't take to it too fondly, and the big brother who escaped or oh, not escaped he well he did really didn't he He got on a bus to go off to vienna to university so it left another woman behind grandmother old and wrinkly and this is what tishda wrote about her there was a story written in every line on her face and i wished i could read them all and he's very
2: fond of his grandma
1: and of course tishda's then at uni in iran it's a very different uni life than we know here
2: very, very different. Um, a life that is almost surreal and, and very difficult to, to, to even imagine for a lot of people.
1: Illegal gatherings, you know, not mixing with uh, women, uh, prohibited books, and having all the art books, you know, completely defaced because, you know, they couldn't show any women below the neck. Oh, incredible. So, Tishta comes to Australia, and this is a quote. It's migrating to an unknown destination. So, so far away, dreaming, thinking, hoping that your wounded roots will heal and grow once more on foreign soil. Mm. So he comes to Australia, but instead of following photography, he does law. So now we come into another part of the story, and this is now, and Tishta is working in sunshine. He has an office above a Vietnamese bakery and next door to a Somalian dress shop. So, what type
2: of law is he doing? He's he's interested in migration and refugee law, or in particular, refugee and, and asylum seekers, and that that's where he puts his focus on. So, he's not interested in corporate law or you know property <laughs> law and things that make money, Um, he he focuses on a lot of pro bono work.
1: And this is where we actually see the detail because he helps out Habiba. She has the Somalian dress shop. And, uh, you know, we read about how she and her husband, their story of migration, but it's her nieces she's worried about. How can Tishka help them?
2: So the the two nieces are two um, teenage girls who are... um, you know, facing grave danger in war-torn Somalia and she wants to somehow bring them to, to Australia and she thinks because she's an Australian citizen she can just oh. simply sponsor them to come. But as it turns out, it's a lot more complicated than that and um, orphan relative visa is the only one, only option that applies to them and that's a process and a half in oh,
1: itself. And, and the expense of doing DNA testing and everything. Look, it was an absolutely fascinating read. There are many other times in history where people have been caught in a conflict of cultures and of old and new ways. There's a third story through the book. Where and what is happening or happened in Visby in 1360?
2: So in 1360, Visby is, is the jewel of, of the Baltic Sea. So it's, it's the capital of Gotland or the, the major city in Gotland, which is a small island off the coast of Sweden. And Gotland was an independent um, island at the time and um, merchants, um, you know, do- dominated the, uh, you know, the trade, merchants from all over the, um, the Europe, in particular from Germany. And it became a focus for the Danish king and, and they decided to invade Gotland and eradicate their sovereignty, basically. So there's a woman,
1: Gretel, who makes a vision... Really, to Tisha, Tisha first saw Gretel when he was a young boy. His grandmother was comfortable with the visitor, and Gretel also came to Melbourne when Tisha came to Melbourne. So, what does this mystical woman from 1360? What does she want from Tishta?
2: Look, I think that's up, um, you know, to the to the readers to interpret the way that they they want to interpret. But, you know, from Tisha's perspective. She She's a figure from, you know, 14th century who wants to remind him that invasion, loss of culture, loss of family, loss of people you love mm. has been happening throughout history over and over and over again. The grandmother tells
1: Tishter, and this is a quote, It's the tale of a broken heart, an unfinished love story in a land ravaged by cruel men. A tale of losing your home to an enemy. A tale of the heroines who fought the invaders with their bare hands. Brave women who died to keep their families and culture alive. This all comes and links back to a poet, a Persian poet, Havez what was his poetry about
2: look hafez's poem has been quite a topic of many many academic debates a lot of hafez is a 14th century poet and he has written a lot about love and passion and and mystical figures although a lot of people have interpreted that as his expression of love to to god so, so you know, he, he, the way he, he writes his poetry is quite fascinating in that it could be interpreted in so many different ways but predominantly centred around love and, and passion and wine and <laughs> a good time, <laughs> having a good time.
1: I don't think there was too much wine in Visby in, uh, back in the 1360s but is it, is it around the time that he wrote this, the 1390s, he was writing his poetry that you connected with Visby from the 1360s because you had so many other
2: invasions to choose from? I think it's just had the story presented itself to to me and um I just followed followed the, the story I, I I you know I always have said that Visby and Gotland chose me I didn't choose them
1: <laughs> Well we better look at the title 40 nights what does that refer to
2: So 40 nights is direct translation from Shabichele which is a winter solstice in northern hemisphere um, Shabbat or 40 nights, has a significant place in, in, in Persian culture. And that's where we mark the beginning of 40 nights of, of winter. And that's when nights become shorter and shorter and days become longer and longer. Of course, in the southern hemisphere, that comes down to summer. <laughs> it's a upside it's, down.
1: But it's, it's this mixture of cultures or a new ritual absorbed into an old to ensure the survival of the traditional one. It's, it's very clever how this is done with, with the festivals which have introduce, introduced. And I've got to say, I, I'm going to ask you to read the last letter from the brother in this book. Read 158, because I think this also makes us feel about that
2: love. So this letter the brother has sent um, when he has gone to Vienna and the war between Iran and Iraq has erupted. It has now been four months since I left home I am slowly getting better at German. It's a difficult language, but I'm doing my best. I have no motivation, and the days are long. I search for a glimmer of hope and inspiration, but to no avail. When I see families together, I wonder if they know what it's like to be forced to leave behind all you love. Not to have a choice. I'm trying to figure out why I have come here. Have I come to study, or have I fled the war and conflict? If the latter, then I'm a coward, for thousands of other young men are fighting their enemy with their blood. I am in no mood to write more. Sorry, I love you, your lonely son.
1: Oh, no, it was so heartfelt. Oh, my goodness. Oh, Peruse Jafari! This was quite a book. I had never thought I'd, I'd be interested in what happened in Gutland in, in 1360. It was fascinating. Peruse Jafari has written an interwoven saga spanning Australia, Iran, and Sweden in 40 nights. It explores love, loss migration and dispossession across centuries and i know you're going to be speaking at a number of things at the melbourne writers festival so i encourage anybody it's really well worth sitting in and hearing more from peruse
0: thank you jane well My novella has a historical context as well, but it's domestic history. While social mores and legal boundaries have changed over time, young gay men must still grapple with uh, perceptions others have of them, as well as their own sense of identity. Now, Jay Carmichael explores the development of one such man in his novella, Marlowe. So, Jay, welcome to 3CR. Thank you for having me. Now, you've set this story in the early 1950s in, well, I'm going to say Melbourne. Um, There's a picture. You've used archival pictures, and there's a picture of trams down Swanson Street, men with hats, women with gloves. It's sort of setting a whole other time, a whole other scene. What's the background of all of that? Uh,
3: Well, I think uh, the... Main reason why I wanted to use those pictures, and there's I think there's about six in all in through the book, is that when you look at the archives in relation to gay men back at that time, a lot of it is not about their day to day lives, it's about you know them going off to court and being caught by the police and whatever because it was illegal. So, I think including those pictures for me was about wanting to really bring to life. The, that day-to-day
0: life of these men. Well, it sets the tone in many ways of, of how conservative the times mm. were, but also then there are uh, images of uh, cross-dressers and, mm. and such like in there as well and what they were doing. But it's also um, a very conservative time, dare I say, mm. draconian, because in fact... The novella starts with the Crimes Act of 1949. Any male person who in public or in private commits or is a party to the commission of or procures or attempts to procure the commission by any male person of an act of gross indecency with another male person shall be guilty of a misdemeanor and shall be liable to imprisonment for a term of no more than three years. In many ways a frightening time. For men uh, and gay men, because yeah. of the imposition of and those expectations that were on them.
3: Yeah, um, I think that when you, like, if you look at, they used to have this column in the paper, the newspaper, like a pillory column, and it was like a summary of all the um, offences that people had committed, not necessarily sexual offences, but just offences, and it was like this public kind of lambasting of people in the paper. And so I suppose if you were reading that as a person, you know, who was gay back in the 1950s, you would see that so-and-so from this address was caught doing this by this person. And it was a very kind of public shaming Mm. and naming, including the details of where you live, In the paper,
0: you wouldn't be allowed to do that today. But it was yes, I mean, very draconian. Mm -hmm. Now, Christopher goes on a physical journey to begin Mm -hmm. with. Uh, The the title of the novella is Marlow. It's a country town. He comes to the city. Is there any significance in that transition from the country to the city?
3: Um, I think. Well, for me personally, I moved from the country to the city um, when I was um, came down to study. So there was a way for me to connect with him through that. Um but also I think I wanted to point out there's this kind of narrative particularly in Australian fiction that you know all country people are so backwards and behind the times but when he gets to the city he finds it's exactly the same. So there's that kind of
0: Yeah, well that, that public shaming is is a case in point. I yeah. mean we Australia, in many ways, was a backwater, a lot of it, at that time. Um, But also then, Christopher has to work things out about his own evolving sexuality, almost through coded signals um, and what things mean. I mean, and a lot of it's perfectly natural. Very early on, he uh, meets Kings in Marlow, a, a school friend, and it's to prepubescent boys and what's this itch I've got sort of thing or scratching Uh, and so becoming aware of sexuality but in that time in in the 1950s there was very little information given to girls and boys about um, puberty adolescence and and things like that so you had to work it out indirectly
3: yeah and I think that um, that kind of idea in kind of um queer literature, there's that tradition of handing down knowledge because I suppose in um, the way knowledge is handed down f- uh, for heterosexual people, it's generally family heritage passed down through generations. But as a kind of, I suppose, a gay man at that time, that knowledge isn't handed down in that way. So you had to find it through coded language and this is kind of these secret handshakes and, what, and whatnot. Well, there's a wink. There's a, a wink a w- or a nod wink.
0: in, in, in <laughs> the, But also there's a sort of code there in the heterosexual community, Kings and Dottie. So Christopher is actually mm. uh, sharing accommodation with Kings. So mm. Kings has got a relationship with Dottie. They take him on a picnic to mm. meet Millie. And it's almost this, well, a, a form of code, an expectation. Mm. Why else would you want to come to the city if you weren't looking for a partner? Female partner, marriage.
3: That's, and I think that's right. That That's for particular kings that's something he can't quite get his head around is why have you come to the city like why why wouldn't you come to the city if not to set up your life with a woman in a house and
0: to Now the interesting thing is in sharing that accommodation mm. what's kings role and how does this yes. affect christopher
3: So he is a um court reporter for a local newspaper and his particular interest is these moral crimes because i suppose it wasn't just um, homosexuality at the time that was illegal. There was, you know, prostitution and things like that. That And he was following them. So I suppose Christopher gets to know that
0: through Kings. But you're constantly faced then, mm. in, in, in his own living, in his own home, mm. with this other um, sort of suspicion uh, uh, that he's, that he's got to live with. He knows, and yet it's constantly with him.
3: Yeah, I think that's, I suppose, a, uh, I don't know, a double whammy, but yeah. living in plain sight, I suppose. that
0: He's living in plain sight, but he's constantly faced with yeah. that sort of uh, mm-hmm. sense that what he's doing or mm. how he's feeling is in some ways immoral, illegal, a violation. You have, then, Christopher meeting Morgan. Mm. Now, there is a wink. There is a walk to the park. Are They actually... Uh, help each other out in the toilet because uh, Morgan's fallen over. But this is a completely innocent
3: encounter,
0: Mm. ironical
3: in some ways. And I think that that was, going back to what you're saying about that living with kings and that being that kind of um, justice being constantly shown to Christopher is I wanted to really dispel that through that first interaction between Christopher and Morgan is that They were just two men at the park. They could have very well been there for other reasons. But but.
0: it it is innocent. But also (laughs) then, going back to this point of observation, the way you've detailed how Christopher senses things, I noticed how his fingers brooded over me from behind like a shadow or a silhouette, accentuated by the dark night and the gradient as we descended. There's a sort of awareness that Christopher has, a feeling of what's going on. Um, What we then have, uh, if we could develop then, um, Morgan, because Morgan is an Indigenous man, Mm -hmm. and so he has challenges of his own, Mm. and what we find the Certificate of Exemption Aborigines Protection Act. This is to certify that you are a person who, in the opinion of the Board for the Protection of Aborigines, ought no longer be subject to the provisions of the Aborigines Protection Act and regarded as a citizen of the ordinary community. This certificate may be revoked at any time and without warning by the Minister administering the Act. So now we've got another community in our society under suspicion you've paralleled the two
3: and i think that that was um important for me to do because i wanted to i didn't want to you know just say that this happened like that i suppose the policing of people's identities was across a spectrum um that it wasn't just based on sexuality it was based on how you looked or where you came from or who your family was as well and i what didn't i don't think i was necessarily trying to make comparisons between the two i just wanted to demonstrate that this was the laws that were in our country and these were the ways that pe- they affected people's lives
0: yes and and people were compartmentalized yeah. in fact you've got a scene at the zoo Uh, where the animals in some ways are (laughs) compartmentalised as well. It's convenient to place people in pigeonholes. Exactly. Um, We also then have that development of that relationship. How do Morgan and Christopher actually develop their relationship? Because it's very gentle in some ways. Mm. So
3: I think it's through, again, playing into that difference between public and private spaces, but also spaces that are privately public and in particular that zoo scene they happen to find themselves in a little alleyway away from everyone yet they're still in uh in public able to be with each other and talk to each other and
0: but somebody informs on them yes that point brings them under suspicion because of that I was thinking actually of the letters oh, yes. Morgan and Christopher write to each other because this is a very even progression yeah and, and a growing awareness of each other uh, just as you would in any relationship yeah and I, I, uh,
3: the thing about the letters too is that I wanted them there because obviously um, You know, they couldn't go to a cafe and have a coffee in front of everyone and talk about their relationship as, say, a straight couple might have. But also the letters like that don't exist or are very hard to come across because those things could be used against you Mm. in a court of law. So I wanted to have that archive of their own in the book that they have a relationship and it, kind of a... But a letter trail of their relationship. But it's a perfectly
0: normal, natural progression. Mm. You've got Christopher meeting Jackie, mm-hmm. cross dresser in the park, etc. Jackie introduces Christopher to a whole other world, a, a coffee shop and such like, where people, like minded people, gather. But what you've got here. Um, eventually you have all of these people around you that all say the same things which means you don't have to think anymore is Jackie's line but Christopher's response I did not want to act as they did I did not want to exist as they existed mm-hmm. so it's almost as if the homosexual community is imposing a, a form of conduct on individuals as well an expectation
3: yeah and I think that that still happens today and I suppose that was another connection that I've tried to make between to understand Christopher was that I find that there is this, just because you belong to the community, there is a certain, certain things that you have to do, certain ways you have to act and certain knowledge that you have to have. And perhaps for someone like Christopher and myself, I don't really want
0: Mm. that. Yeah, but again, you know, breaking out, finding your own identity as yes. an individual exists within any aspect of the community. The crux of the novella is the relationship between Christopher and Morgan, which has to be ne- negotiated. There's elements of trust and negotiation, mm-hmm. a violation of that uh, that takes place. There's also an undercurrent, not in the relationship, their relationship, but an undercurrent of violence mm-hmm. in the community that you expose as well. So that's that's quite a challenge. So the novella is called Marlow. It's a scribe publication release and the author is Jay Carmichael. So Jay, thank you very much for talking with me today. And thank I you. was
1: speaking with Peruz Jafari about his book Forty Nights. Thank you, authors, thank you, David.
0: And next week we will be back We will be back with then. more authors. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.